open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus, no, to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. We're still in the middle of the long saga of Paul's arrest and detention in Jerusalem. He was arrested for being in the middle of a riot, essentially, taken into protective custody, given the opportunity to speak to the crowd, creating more of a riot, given the opportunity to testify before the Sanhedrin, creating another riot, leading to a plot on the Jews' part to kill him, which caused him to be dispatched to Caesarea, the provincial capital, where we find him in chapter 24. So Paul is here in Caesarea, and his trial is ready to commence before the governor of the province. The governor is named Felix. He's mentioned uh, in verse 3, most noble Felix. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says that Felix exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. So Roman historians are not real keen on this guy, but we'll see what Luke makes of him. Acts chapter 24. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. We have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, <clears throat> Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so... I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, and in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a multitude nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, 
when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, and he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we read about Paul's defense, his trial before Felix, we ask that you would give us confidence in the resurrection of the dead. Lord, be with us. Sharpen our understanding. Cleanse our hearts by faith. Help us to understand the issues in this text and to hear what the Spirit says to the churches through it. We pray these things in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Why are there so many trials? We've moved from Paul, the missionary, going to new territory after new territory and preaching the gospel, which is what we had roughly from Acts 12 through 19. And now we are in Paul on trial phase. Paul is, as we saw last time, he's tried, presents his case to the Jerusalem crowd, to the centurion with the statement, I am a Roman citizen, to the, the Sanhedrin. Now he presents it to Felix, next chapter to Festus, and the chapter after that to Agrippa. Paul defends himself time after time after time. It's clear that for Luke, it is just as important for us to see Paul on trial as it is for us to see Paul going to new places and planting new churches. In other words, right, Paul is not saying, Luke is not saying, ah, oh, two years in prison. What an incredible waste of time. This is so stupid. This is 140th of my life, at least, probably more than that. I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs when there's so much missionary work to be done. Paul doesn't say that. Luke doesn't say that because Luke turns the camera on this period of Paul's life and says, people of God, this is worthwhile. This is key. This helps us know that the kingdom of Christ is certain. How does it help us know that the kingdom of Christ is certain? And the answer is that Luke is telling us that resurrection hope carries us through any number of trials, any amount of wasted time, any number of different people that we have to defend our hope to, resurrection hope is powerful enough to sustain us through it all. Right, what do we have? This show Shark Tank, which I've never seen, but apparently you have to make a pitch to people to say, give me money. I can make it into more money for you. Well, you could imagine a product that you could pitch to certain people and they would like that product, but Luke is saying 
the resurrection is so good that it's not just good for some people in some places, it's good for all people in all places. You can defend yourself, you can defend the church, you can express your hope in any circumstances to any crowd, to any governor or king or highly placed official, simply by stating the truth that Jesus is alive. And Luke highlights that over and over and over in this trial sequence. So it's true the resurrection is not mentioned in chapter 21 when we see Paul getting arrested for the first time. In chapter 22, Paul insists that Jesus is alive and recounts at length the conversation that he had with him. Cal tells that to the Jerusalem crowd. And then Luke gives us this series of statements where Paul insists over and over in every trial, this trial is about the resurrection. And in other words, what is Paul saying? This trial is not about me, not about my personal guilt or innocence, not about my character. This is not a referendum on Saul of Tarsus. This is a referendum on whether Jesus Christ is alive. Follow me through these chapters. Chapter 23, verse 6. Paul cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Right, so Paul defines the issue as the resurrection in chapter 23. Turn the page to chapter 24, verse 15. Paul says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So again, to Felix, he insists, this is about the resurrection. This is key. Is Jesus alive? Chapter 24, or chapter 25, rather, verse 19. Uh, Festus says this. They had some questions about him, against him, about their own religion, and about one Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Right? An outsider, Festus, describes resurrection in these terms that a Roman could understand. There's this dead guy, Jesus. Paul affirms that he is alive. And then again in chapter 26, in verse 22, uh, Paul describes this, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So that, that last verse of chapter 26 is the literary climax of the book of Acts, Paul's final summary of his mission. And the gospel that he proclaimed, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is the first to suffer and the first to rise from the dead. In other words, others will rise too. Jesus is the first fruits. So in the trial sequence, the key issue is not the suspense. Is Paul going to get off? Right? Luke, in one sense, doesn't care about that. He never tells us whether Paul is let off. That is not the issue. The issue is the resurrection of Jesus. Is the resurrection enough to sustain you through any period of waiting, any trial, any imprisonment, 
anything that comes up. Paul got in trouble because he believed in the resurrection. That's what he insists on. I am here. I am in chains. I am on trial. Not because of riots. Not because of bad luck. Not because of theological arguments. But because Jesus Christ is alive. Paul is so certain that Jesus is alive that in one sense he doesn't mind all of this. You've been unjustly detained by the Roman state. You've been thrown in a hole for two years, waiting for a bribe. What's the first thing on your mind? First thing on Paul's mind was Jesus is alive. That's how he defends himself over and over and over. Not, this is an outrage. You can't treat a Roman citizen this way. What is wrong with the administration of justice in this province? I'll talk to Caesar. I'll have your head. He doesn't do that. Because what he is about is about the resurrection of the dead. Is that what we're about? In terms of culture war issues, oh, unjust governance, terrible state problems, the government is doing evil things. Paul wasn't all upset about it, even though he was personally the victim in this case. Paul was most concerned about whether Jesus was alive. And that's a model for us. We need to be these resurrection people. His biggest concern is, is Jesus alive? If so, then my problems dwindle into insignificance. I can surmount any problem if my Lord is alive. So that's the context, and that is really the substance of this sermon and the next two, as Paul, in each trial, comes back to the same defense, which is basically, I don't want to talk about the accusations. I can tell you that they're pointless. I can tell you that they're unprovable. I can tell you that the witnesses, if there are any, are not even here. But let me tell you this, Jesus lives. And that's where Paul goes in each of these three trials. So let's look briefly at the specifics of this first trial before Felix, Tertullus, the orator, gets up. Uh, different people have been very hard on Tertullus and called him this very evil flatterer and gone on and on about what's wrong with him and how he uh, says too many nice things about Felix. That could be... I think that Luke is simply telling us he's a lawyer. This is how lawyers talk. You can get all upset about Tertullus or you can move on, which is what we're going to do. Tertullus mentions four specific accusations. The first is, this man is a plague. This guy is pestiferous. Wherever he goes, he infects society. He is a plague. Now, Luke's own narrative has told us that that charge is, in one sense, perfectly true. Everywhere Paul goes, riots do break out. Everywhere Paul goes, he is rejected and forced to run out of town in the dead of night, or else be taken out in protective custody so he won't be murdered. That's the life of Paul. Paul doesn't really address this accusation. He says he sidesteps it because... 
the issue is not properly before the court. There's nothing illegal about being a play. It's not illegal to be stupid. It's not illegal to be a pest. And so Paul just completely ignores that charge because there is nothing a court of law can do about somebody being a pest. That's not a crime. But Tertullus mentions it because that is what his client paid him to mention. He's a pest. Secondly, he's a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. That is, he stirs up riots wherever he goes. Again, a charge not properly before the court. Felix is governor of the double province of Syria-Palestine. Felix is empowered to try charges originating in that province or individuals originating in that province who have committed crimes in other jurisdictions. Paul did not originate from Syria-Palestine. Rather, Paul is charged with a crime in Syria-Palestine. And therefore, the statement that the accused causes riots throughout the world is utterly irrelevant to the issue at hand, which Paul, of course, therefore sidesteps that as well. Maybe I have caused riots in many cities all around Greece and southern Turkey. That has nothing to do with what we're here for. Felix has no authority to try those charges. And besides, there are no witnesses present. No unbiased observers who are there and saw the riot in the Ephesian theater or anything along those lines. So, third charge, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this charge is true. Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. But once again, is there anything wrong or illegal about that? Felix is sitting there thinking, Jews are disagreeing with each other again. Is this anything that I have to deal with? No. Who cares whether the Jews disagree with each other? It's not against the law, and besides, it's going to happen no matter what I decide. So the final charge, then, is that he tried to profane the temple. Right? That is the sting in the tail. That's the only charge that the court could actually act on if that charge is proven to be correct. The Romans gave the Jews a short leash in many areas, it didn't have their own criminal law proceedings and so on. What they did have was the temple. The temple was their baby. The Romans recognized that, and the Romans said, within the walls of that temple, you do whatever you want. We won't touch it. We won't mess with it. The temple is yours. Here, have it. And we will back you up on anything you say about crimes within or against the temple. So this is the one leg that the Sanhedrin has to stand on. This is the legal charge that they could possibly make stick. The trouble is, as Paul says immediately, is they don't have any witnesses. Right? Verse 12. They didn't find me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting the crowd. I wasn't even in the synagogue. I wasn't in the city doing those things nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. There are no witnesses to this crime. And Paul mentions that 
Verse 18, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the multitude nor with tumult. Asian Jews are the original witnesses. They're the ones who, oh, that's right, they're not here. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. So Paul says, there's no case here. The witnesses are missing in action. I win by default because there is no one to prosecute a charge, no witnesses who saw me do anything wrong. The Sanhedrin, Ananias, and so on who are here, let those who are here say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. If I sinned against the law of Rome in any way in my interview with the Sanhedrin last week, go ahead and say it now, Ananias. The only thing you can pin on me is that I said, this is about the resurrection of the dead. Paul wraps it up there. That's his final words. It's the resurrection of the dead. The trial is not about being a pest, stirring up riots, leading Nazarenes. Those things are not illegal. I didn't profane the temple. There are no witnesses here who can say that I profane the temple. Jesus is alive. The end. That's how Paul gives his speech. So he says in the middle and at the end, the real issue is resurrection hope. Death is not the end. Life is not ultimately hopeless. There is something beyond death. We will live again. Paul is saying, acquit me and you're on the side of life. Condemn me and you're on the side of death. Paul doesn't throw a fit about how they're so mean. He focuses on the truth that Jesus is alive. So again, he defends himself by sidestepping the charges. I didn't cause disturbance in Jerusalem, which is the only jurisdiction that this court is empowered to try. I've only been there less than two weeks. I didn't have time to do all kinds of evil within the city. And so he says, essentially, I'm a Jew. I have the freedom to present an idea that other Jews don't like. <clears throat> Happened in antiquity, and it still happens today. One needs only go into a mixed Jewish crowd and say the words Benjamin Netanyahu, and you will see that Jews can and do continue to disagree vociferously with one another. Paul points that out and says, in legal terms, unproven guilt is not guilt at all. I am innocent until proven guilty. They can't prove the accusation. That's his defense, verse 13. If it's unproven, then it's unsubstantiated. Some of our reformed ethicists in the 17th century went so far as to say that in court, if they can't prove the charges against you, you are not morally required to confess and incriminate yourself. You are required morally to confess when you did something wrong if the charges can be proved. But if they can't, you are not sinning by remaining silent. So I'm not sure what I think of that statement, but I just read that this week preparing on the Ninth Commandment. Anyway, Paul specifically says, because it can't be proved, it's a non-issue. I plead not guilty. And I know the court will sustain me in this plea. 
because there are no witnesses to present evidence to the contrary. Paul doesn't just say, though, that I believe in the resurrection. He says, I believe in the resurrection, and this affects my life. This changes how I live. He mentions two things in particular. Resurrection hope creates a clear conscience. This being so, verse 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Why does Paul keep his conscience clean? Because he's going to need that conscience in the life to come. He's going to have to give an account for everything that he does with his life on the far side of death. And so, based on the reality of the resurrection, he doesn't just live in hope, he also lives morally. He lives an ethically upright life. Keeps his conscience clean because he is looking towards a future accounting to God. In other words, if you really believe in the resurrection, that won't cause you to do dangerous things like bungee jumping and mountain unicycling. It will cause you to do upright things, righteous things, like giving alms to your nation, which is what Paul says. Not only do I keep my conscience clean, it, I am generous. I've been gone for many years, and I came to bring alms to my nation. I was in the process of giving money to poor Jewish people. That was literally what I was doing. Yes, the Jews want to kill me, fine, but the reality is that I was there helping them out financially because I believe in the resurrection. In other words, it's not I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. It's I'm so fixed on the future and life in Jesus after death that right now I open my wallet and I give to those less fortunate. So what does Paul challenge us with? He says, if you believe in the resurrection, you won't rant about how you're mistreated by the government. You will live a righteous, upright life. You will be generous to the poor. This is what people who believe in the resurrection do. Paul worshiped because he believed in the resurrection. Paul gave because he believed in the resurrection. Paul kept his conscience clean because he believes in the resurrection. That's the business of the Christian life. Obeying God, when you mess up and dirty your conscience, going back to him for forgiveness and cleansing your, your conscience, and then going and worshiping him. That's how he lived, and that's how we should live. So Paul sits in prison. Felix withholds judgment. Uh, Felix says, first of all, he has this excuse in verse 23 or 22. Well, I'll wait till the centurion comes. Now, he already had the centurion's report. There was nothing more that the centurion or the tribune, Lysias, was going to add to that written report. But Felix just wanted an excuse to avoid making a decision. Why? Because Felix was a politician and Felix understood that to free Paul would be a political disaster. <clears throat> Felix's constituency hates Paul's guts. That's why they took the time to travel up to Caesarea in person to 
I can use him. These are the grand poobahs of Judaism. They don't just go two days away to Caesarea just for fun. The fact that they came tells Felix, if I let this prisoner go, I am in big trouble with the political establishment, the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and it will not pay to get in trouble with them. I'm going to need their help if I want a glowing report card to present to Caesar. If I infuriate the Jerusalem establishment, they can ruin the rest of my term as governor. So Felix needs an excuse. He finds one stupid one. Oh, well, the tribune will come at some point and we'll try this again. Uh, after a few days, uh, Felix says, well, maybe my wife would like to hear this. So he comes in with Drusilla. She's an interesting character. She was not his first wife, uh, nor was he her first husband. Felix had found her married to somebody else. said, wow, you're beautiful. You want to come be my wife? And she said, sure. So he's there with his stolen wife. and They're talking to Paul, and Paul starts very boldly telling them about righteousness and temperance, self-control. Here's how you people should live. You shouldn't go steal other people's wives. And Felix starts to get afraid. He's a politician who is afraid of offending the Jews, but now he's afraid of the wrath of God. He starts to feel a little bit of the fear of God in his soul. And so that's another good excuse to send Paul back to the pokey. Paul, go away. And maybe if you bribe me enough, it'll be worth it to me to offend the Jews. And especially, you know, my term is coming to an end and then I won't have to care about whether the Jews like me. But after two years, his term came to an end and he ended his career with one last favor to Paul, or to the Jews rather. You guys hate this guy? I'll leave him in prison. Maybe the next fellow will be willing to fall in with your plans. So is Felix devoted to justice? No. Does Felix believe in the resurrection? No. Does Paul make any impact on Felix? Maybe a tiny bit. But this is certainly not like the earlier part of Acts where Paul goes to a city and preaches. And hundreds of people come to faith and suddenly there's this thriving church. Not at all. Paul's missionary experiences suddenly start to look a lot more like ours. I might be able to get in far enough to get the person afraid of the wrath of God. But a conversion? Not looking very promising. What is Luke's point? The reign of Christ is real. Even when governors and kings don't believe the message, even when politicians act like politicians and lawyers act like lawyers, even when the mighty apostle sits in the slammer for two years, Jesus still reigns. And Paul is able to come out from time to time and say, Jesus is alive, I trust him, I believe in him, you should believe in him too. And that's Luke's message to us. Regardless of how the politicians and the lawyers are behaving, Jesus is alive. Believe it, trust it, live in light of it. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that good attitude that Paul manifested. 
to live in light of the resurrection, not to be angry about the antics of the lawyers and politicians, even when they personally harm us. Rather, Father, help us to know that Jesus is alive and to shape our whole lives around that truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord.